Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. We're back in this book, and I hope you're not bored with it. You will be one of the rare Christians who can say you've been through a study of the book of Ecclesiastes verse by verse. I don't know I've ever heard of anyone else doing that, but... Uh, we're doing it now. So verse by verse. And I'm going to try to cover all 29 verses. So you've got to listen fast this morning. And uh, I've got to move uh, quickly. Uh, chapter 7 and verse 1. Let's read that and then we'll go over to chapter 1. Look at chapter 7 verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now look over in chapter 1 again. And uh, in case you have forgotten or you're, this is your first time here, uh, this gives us the theme and the, and the key to understanding this book. And verse 1 of chapter 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So that would be Solomon, a man of great wisdom, David's son. And this is one of the poetic books in the Old Testament, so it's written in poetic form. And uh, he says, now he gives us the theme in verse 2, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now that word vanity appears 38 times through this 12 chapters. And uh, this is the theme. Vanity means emptiness, meaningless, void. And notice he says, all is vanity. He really means that, all. He means Family, life itself, your occupation, your finances. He's going to name in those next chapters, he's going to name all the things you can think of and say all of it is vanity, empty, meaningless. Verse 3, though, gives us the key. What profit hath a man of all his labor which is taken under the sun? That term under the sun appears 30 times in the 12 chapters, and it's really the key. Life is meaningless when we are just under the sun. That is, we don't take into account what is above the sun, which is God himself, the creator of the universe. And so when people live without God, they're just living under the sun. And all of life is meaningless because we were created for his purpose and we only find meaning in him. And then, I guess I keep reminding us, it's possible to have a relationship with God and live as though... You're, you're under, just under the sun. Uh, Solomon, that was his experience. He was miserable because he lived like someone who was just under the sun. And uh, so Christ needs to have an a important place in our life, yea, the preeminent place in our life, and we live walking with him. And so that term is like uh, under the sun is... Without, that term poetically means without God. So he's saying all of life is miserable without God. Now we come to chapter 7, and that's where we're going to pick up our study. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for our time together. Make it profitable for each of us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Came across an article recently by Kent Hughes, and uh, he writes about a a new class opening up at the University of Wyoming. And the class is to teach its students how to communicate with aliens. That's right, space people. 
how to communicate with aliens. And this is a genuine class. On the website, it says, and I quote, uh, the, uh, we've thought a lot about how we might communicate with other worlds, the professor says, but we haven't thought much about what we would actually say. So that's what this class, class uh, is about. He goes on to tell that the first assignment was for the students to write in ten words to summarize the condition of mankind, uh, of the human condition. And one writes, quote, we are an adolescent species searching for our identity. Kent Hughes writes regarding that, he says, if this is what passes for higher education in America these days, it's hard to know whether to laugh or cry. But then he responds a little more seriously. He says, but we should also respond with pity for what it tells us about the condition of fallen humanity. People are searching for meaning, calling in the darkness, and hoping there's someone out there who can tell us who we are. Wow. Well, God's Word is the answer to who we are and why we're here, where we came from, and where we're going. God's Word contains all of that. And this book of Ecclesiastes in particular is about how to find meaning right here, right now in life. Without God, everything is meaningless. But with God, everything takes on meaning and purpose. And uh, we can find true meaning and reality and purpose. And that's what this book of, of Ecclesiastes is about. Now when we come to chapter 7... We, uh, we really have a change in the, uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. The theme remains on through the whole chapter, of, I mean, through the whole book, but you can tell a difference just in a casual reading when you get to chapter 7. You, you think you're in the book of Proverbs because it is, a, it is a chapter full of Proverbs. And instead of waiting till the, to, through a conclusion, as we've seen, there's seven conclusions in this book. Instead of waiting till we get to a conclusion to tell us how to live, in this chapter, he's telling us how to live back and forth. For instance, he uses the word better here. He uses that word more in this chapter than any other chapter. Eight times in this chapter, he uses the word better. Uh, wisdom is better than folly. Righteousness is better than sin, and so on and so forth. Uh, he uses the word wisdom more in this chapter than any other chapter in the book, 13 times. And so this is a chapter about wisdom for God's people. And uh, it, is, it is very helpful. Now there's a lot of subjects covered because, again, it's, it's Proverbs. Remember, Solomon's the one human author of the book of Proverbs as well. And God, the Holy Spirit, is the divine author of both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And so, we come to that somewhat of a, of a change here. Uh, he's giving us instructions on how to live wisely. Now, look at your screen for a moment. Uh, 
And so we can put it in some kind of groupings, context, because there's a lot of subjects uh, discussed. Here's what I would say about wisdom in chapter 7. The first ten verses is saying wisdom can make life better. We all want to have a better life. Wisdom can make life better. Uh, Starting in in verse 11, wisdom helps us see life clearer. More clearly, we can understand and perceive life and what's going on. And then, uh, starting in verse 19, wisdom helps us face life stronger. Uh, We actually gain strength to say no to sin and yes to God with this divine wisdom. Now, James in the New Testament tells us there's two kinds of wisdoms. There's, there's wisdom, there's the wisdom of man. And he says it's earthly and it is sensual. That's, and it causes divisions and strifes and so forth. That's the wisdom of man. We see that in our society all around the world. But the wisdom, he says, there's another wisdom. That's the wisdom of God. It's from above. And it is peaceable. It is full of mercy. It is gentle. And it uh, brings forth good fruit. That's the kind of peace that God, I mean, the kind of wisdom that God gives. So there's two kinds of wisdoms here. Now, with that intro, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 7. A good name, that means a good testimony. <clears throat> a, uh, a good reputation is better than precious ointments. Now, ointment, would, you could translate it oil, you could translate it perfume. Uh, and it was very valuable in the Middle East in the days of Jesus and in the days of Solomon, which was a thousand years before the time of Christ. And he's not saying now that precious ointment is not valuable. He's just saying a good testimony is more valuable. Now, ointment can, could be extremely valuable. You remember when uh, the bottle was broken on Jesus and poured out on him, and it would be worth, it would be, it, that bottle was worth a year's wages of an average worker. Wow. Can you imagine if you had a bottle of oil or perfume that was worth, what, $50,000, $70,000 for one bottle of perfume? That's pretty valuable. But a good testimony is better than that. A good reputation for Christ, that people will know that you're, you're a believer, a follower of Christ, and they can see it in your life, and they can hear it in your words. And you draw people closer to Christ by your very life. A testimony, a good name, better than precious ointment. And the day of death better than the day of one's birth. Now, that's not saying that, a, that the birth is not valuable. It is. We should celebrate a birth. We should celebrate birthdays, in which we do. And uh, that's a wonderful thing. But death is even better Of course, the most obvious thing that comes to mind is when we die, we go to a place where there's no more sickness and no more sorrow and no crime and uh, no hatred and and so forth. We leave a place that's full of all of those things and go to a place that uh, has none of those things. And so in that way, it is certainly better. So birth is good, but death is, the day of death is even better. 
And especially if you think about it like this, tying it to that first part of that verse, someone who dies with a good testimony and a good reputation can touch people's lives. And he's going to mention that in the next verse. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men. That is, death is the end of all men. We all face death, except for that one generation that will be alive when Jesus comes back. Uh, And the living will lay it to his heart. Now again, he didn't say it was wrong to go to a house of feasting or a, a celebration or a place where there's a party going on. There may be a family party, a 50th wedding anniversary, or birthday parties. All of that's good. That's not bad. But it is even better to uh, recognize the sorrow that death brings and uh, to be in the house of, of mourning because God can use that to mold us And to make us. People who are, for instance, look at the end of verse 2. The living lay it to his heart. I knew a a preacher one time. Was a dear friend of mine. And uh, he was uh, was saved at a funeral. And he was was pretty wild before he was saved. And uh, he got a friend of his died. I think a drug overdose. And... He got saved at that funeral, called to preach, and then served the Lord for many years. Sometimes over the years, we've had people come to Christ during a funeral. Just this past Wednesday at Lonnie's funeral. Lonnie would be happy to hear this, know this. There was two adult men that raised their hand that they prayed with me to receive Christ. When we think about death, it makes us aware that we're all going to have to die and we all need to prepare. And so men will take it to heart. Look at verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. The heart is made stronger. The heart is made more like Christ. We are refined and made into His image more by problems and sorrows and so forth than we are by uh, laughter. In other words, the, the, the hard times have more of a molding influence on us than the easy times do. And so, sorrow. Now, it doesn't mean laughter is not good. Laughter is good. Uh, and and laughter is a wonderful thing. The book of Proverbs talks about laughter and the importance of it. Look at just one, one verse here. Look at, back at your screen for a moment. And uh, notice these verses about, in Proverbs about uh, happiness. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bone. So God's not saying we should go around sorrowful all the time. He's saying sorrow has a more benefit to mankind than, uh, than, uh, the, than the easy times. Here he's saying to us, a merry heart, a happy heart, a rejoicing heart is a heart that does good like a medicine. Uh, the Amplified puts it like this, a happy heart is good medicine and a cheerful mind works healing, but uh, broken, a broken spirit dries up the bones. And the, the uh, NLT says a cheerful heart 
is good medicine, but a broken spirit saps a person's strength. And so it's good, but it's even better that is does a better work in us. Now look at, uh, uh, again, uh, the verses that we just looked at. Look at them in the NLT. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies. So the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. Look at verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. Now he begins to talk about fools and foolishness. It is better to hear the rebuke of a wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. That word translated song there in the Hebrew can be translated praise and sometimes is in the King James. And, uh, and so it, it means better to... It, it's better for a wise man to point out where you're wrong than it is, is for a foolish man to tell you how good you're doing. Yeah. I mean, you can hear that from a lot of people. Well, you're, you're doing a great job. Everything's great when you're going down a foolish road. Better to get a rebuke from a wise man. And then uh, verse uh, 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Now we have the laughter of the fool. This is not the laughter like was compared in those earlier verses. The laughter in those earlier verses could have been the laughter of a family, uh, a, a laughter of, uh, of God's people uh, rejoicing together. The laughter of the fool is the laughter of people who are laughing over sinful things. Uh, they're intoxicated. See them at a bar intoxicated, all laughing big and telling big stories and talking loud. And, and uh, the laughter of fools, laughing, telling jokes over sinful things. That's the laughter of fools. And it's like thorns under a pot. Think about this. You're, you're cooking. you got a pot and you're making a fire and you gathered some thorns. The thorns crackle and they burn quickly they don't produce much heat because they're gone so quickly it says that laughter is just makes loud sounds crackling but it really does no has no value does nothing of value and then it's gone that's the way the laughter of fools is verse 7 surely oppression maketh a wise man mad now that, that, that word mad doesn't mean angry it means crazy um, so he says, uh, the oppression, surely oppression makes a wise man mad. Oppression there can be translated, uh, uh, the thought of bribery, extortion. Uh, if a wise man falls into the trap of some type of uh, extortion, it causes him great pain, sorrow of, of of mind like he's going crazy and a gift there's the same idea you know Proverbs a lot of times will make comparisons they'll repeat themselves in the same verse make a comparison or they'll make a a uh, a contrast so this is one of those comparisons and a gift destroys the heart that is a bribe destroys the heart uh, so be careful that you don't get entangled in a bribe or extortion of some sort because it 
brings great pain. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Better, you know, it's easy to start, start something, isn't it? <laughs> it's a lot harder to, to bring it to completion. Uh, but it's better. Better to bring something to completion than to just start it. Uh, and that's true of your life, Christian life. Anybody can start living better and different and trying to please the Lord. But uh, if you finish that way, ah, now that makes a difference, doesn't it? If you finish faithful to the Lord, and so it is. And then also, uh, patience of spirit better than pride. Be not hasty in thy spirit, verse 9, to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. You know, some people justify their anger because they've had it bad or because their mama had a temper or their daddy had a temper or something like that. God says a lot about anger in the book of Proverbs. And anger is foolish. The New Testament says this, The anger of, of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Anger never brings about something good from God. Anger, he says here, uh, better to not be angry for that rest in the bosom of fools. Say not thou, what is the cause of the former days where better things uh, were... Former days were better things, better than these. <laughs> the reading is difficult. What is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. So if you say this, you're not being wise. The former days were better. You know, you hear the term pretty often in our society still, and people use it sometimes in a meaning. They really mean it. Other times they're just kidding, but they say something about longing for the good old days. It's exactly what this is talking about here, longing for the good old days. God says it's not wise to do that. Don't long for the good old days. Enjoy the days you have now. By the way, how far back do you want to go for the good old days? You want to go back far enough where you don't have air conditioning and in the summer? Not me. You want to go far enough back where you, you ride a horse to work? Not me. How about uh, you want to go back far enough where you can, um, uh, you know, you have to heat your house and keep your family warm in the winter by cutting down trees and splitting wood to keep your house warm? Now, some of us do that, but we do it because we like a fire, not because we have to. How far back do you want to go in those good old days? How about, you want, how about this? You want to go back far enough before indoor plumbing? Outhouse? Out across the yard there through the cold? Not me. God is saying, you, you, you know, God has said in other places in Ecclesiastes this. Don't wish for things you don't have. Enjoy what you do have. Enjoy life. Now he's saying that about the time and season. Don't wish it was a different season. Be glad it's the season it is because that's where God has put you. Uh, I have here a... Let me see if I can find that note. I've got a note here from... from uh, it's got a couple of quotes on it from people regarding this. It, maybe I've got time to... Do this quickly. Look, it says here, 
Yesterday is past and cannot be changed. Tomorrow may not come. So make the most of today. Uh, and then an, another one says, uh, it says, while you are, oh, hypnot, okay, here it is. God doesn't want you to be paralyzed by yesterday or hypnotized by tomorrow. He wants you to live today in the will of God. And then another one. While you were dreaming of the future or regretting the past, the present, which is all you have, slips from you and is gone. So that's what God is saying to us. This is the season we're in. Take advantage of it. Grasp it. Live it. Love it. And enjoy life. And so uh, he says, don't wish for days uh, uh, for the old ways or the old times. Let me find my place. Verse 10, I think it is. Verse 11. Yes, verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. Now we know from the context, the next verse is going to talk about money. So this inheritance is not a spiritual thing. This is a financial or a material inheritance. So it says, wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense. Money is a defense from poverty, and from someone coming and taking your house away, and so forth. So an inheritance where you gain money, or possessions, property, and so forth, would be a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Uh, then notice how it goes on. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. Both are good. Wisdom and money, uh, inheritance is both good, but there's no comparison between the two because wisdom gives life. And uh, poor people can have life, a good life, and a wonderful life, and a loving life, and enjoy life. Wisdom gives life. And then he says in verse 12, uh, no, verse 13. And by the way, in verse 11, we started that second section that wisdom uh, causes us to see life more clearly. We understand life a little better and so forth with wisdom. We still don't understand all of God's mysteries by any chance, by any stretch of the imagination. So verse 13 says, Consider the work of God who hath made the straight, who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? Question mark. Who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? Well, it's a rhetorical question, of course. The answer is no one. Uh, If God has made something crooked, then uh, only God can straighten that. And man cannot. There are some things in life that are unfair. But they can't be changed. We have to accept God's sovereignty. And this speaks again of His sovereignty. Verse 14 says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. God also hath set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. Now that nothing, find nothing after him is kind of an unusual statement. I wrote in, my, in the leaf of my Bible 20 years ago, I guess, 
verse 14, I wrote this concerning that term after him. His future, that is, it refers to his future. He doesn't know what the future holds, so he must learn to trust the one who holds the future. Adversity pushes us to trust the Lord. We don't know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future. So we should draw close to him in the time of adversity and difficulty. But both those days, seasons of life, come from God himself. Again, I've got a, uh, ampl- uh, the uh, uh, paraphrase down here. Put that up for it. Thank you so much. Uh, don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. That's simply put in it. And then the verse we just read, Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that both, that both come from God. Remember that nothing is certain in this life. Look at verse 15. All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness... And there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. There's probably not a one of us here who hadn't pondered that sometime in our life. We see someone who blasphemes God, has nothing to do with God, sins uh, with, uh, with laughter, and lives a long life, lives a long time. They do things that's supposed to be bad for your health, and they still live a long life. And then you have a young man or a young woman who love the Lord and, and walking with Him. And they get cancer and die. Or they're in an automobile accident and die. It just doesn't make sense, does it? It's not fair. And that's what he's saying to us. It's not fair. He has seen this. And it was bothersome to him. That's one of the things that's crooked that nobody can make straight. God has not promised that life would be fair. Then we go to verse 16. Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself over wise. Now, the newer translations say don't be overly righteous or overly wise. Uh, Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Then he says, be not overly much wicked. Don't be too wicked. Neither be thou foolish. Why should thou die before thy time? Some folks have taken these two verses and said, God is telling us to be moderate in life. Don't be too righteous. Don't be too wise. Don't be too wicked. You can be a little bit wicked. Just don't be overly wicked. Don't be overly foolish. Does that sound like instruction God would give? Can can you be too righteous? Could you be too good? I I don't see how you could. Could you be too wise? Anybody be too wise? I don't see how you could be too wise, do you? Um, And God certainly is not going to tell us you can go ahead and be wicked. Just don't be too wicked, you know. Be wicked in moderation. God's not talking about moderation here. Um, Dr. Warren Wiersbe explains that the the verbs in verse 16 have a tense indicating one who considers himself a certain thing. Somebody considering themselves to be righteous or wise. I've got kind of a a long quote here 
but I want you to understand this verse and, and not fall for this, um, uh, the common thought about it. Uh, here it is by Dr. Warren Wiersbe. Solomon said to the people, don't claim to be righteous and don't claim to be wise. In other words, he was warning them against self-righteousness and the pride that comes when we think we have arrived and know it all. Solomon made it clear in verse 20 that there, is, there are no righteous people, so he cannot be talking, uh, referring to true righteousness. He is condemning the self-righteousness of the hypocrite and the false wisdom of the proud, and he warns that these sins lead to destruction. I thought that was a great quote. Look back now at our text. Uh, it is good, verse 18, it is good that thou shouldest take hold of this, yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Now he's saying all the things I've said so far, if you fear the Lord, you can overcome these things and benefit from the making good choices. If you And the things that he's going to mention even later in this chapter, he's saying uh, if you fear the Lord... You can take advantage of all of these things and not fall into these traps and snares. Um, fear uh, is a key word in this book. It's only used seven times, but in the final conclusion, it's the main word in the final conclusion of the whole book. And fear of the Lord means, you know, Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's how it gets started. And the fear of the Lord is... a uh, uh, being in awe of who he is, how grand and great he is. And because he's great and grand, we yield to him. We're rightly related to him as creator to creature. Fear of the Lord. And then verse 19 starts that section of the chapter that uh, wisdom makes us stronger. It makes us, it makes us uh, better. It makes life better. It makes uh, life clearer and it makes life makes us stronger in life that starts in verse 19 wisdom strengthen uh, strengtheneth the wise more than 10 mighty men which are in a city in those days <clears throat> a city that had 10 mighty men would be a great city and a strong city he's saying a man who has wisdom is even stronger than that now he's not talking about a city being strong he's talking about the individual there being strong, strong to say no to sin, strong to take the right path when, uh, when there's an opportunity and temptation is there, an opportunity to take the wrong path, strength to take the right path, it is. Verse 20 says, For there is not a just man upon earth that do doeth good and sinneth not. That sounds like it ought to be in the book of uh, Romans, doesn't it? You know, I've said through this study many times, this is not a book of theology. This is a book of, uh, of um, poetry. And, uh, but this sounds like it came right out of the theological book of, of uh, Romans. And maybe, maybe Paul had this in mind when he wrote that third chapter there and was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Verse 21. Also take... Now, he's going to elaborate as he closes this chapter on... The fact that there's none good, not one. No one that sinneth not. 
He says in verse 21, Also take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest, they, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. Now let's take that word curse and, uh, and translate it like this. Think about it like this. It means to talk negative, to gossip, to say bad things about. We think that when we think of cursing, we think of profanity, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Excuse me. So, don't, uh, don't let everything you hear bad about yourself, don't take it to heart and let it discourage you and get the best of you. In verse 22, For oft times also thine own heart knoweth that uh, thou likewise has cursed others or you've been negative about others or said bad things about other people. So, you know, we live in an age when, uh, like on, online, on social media, people criticize each other without mercy. And, uh, I mean, it, it, and there's so much hate and so forth. And sometimes it's general hate, but sometimes it's pointed at somebody, you know. And So don't let those things get the best of you. Uh, and remember, too, don't hold it against them too hard because, remember, you've probably said negative things about somebody along the way yourself that you shouldn't have said. So uh, don't, let it, don't let gossip get the best of you. And then he says, um, uh, verse 23, all, all this have I proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. You know, you don't gain wisdom just by saying... I think I'm going to be wise today. Wisdom comes from God himself. It's wisdom from above. Now, there is wisdom of the earth, but it causes problems and troubles, and it's earthly and, and uh, sensual. But the wisdom from above comes from God, and the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. We begin with that right relationship with him, and then wisdom comes from his word, where he speaks to us and teaches us, and we acquire that knowledge, and in doing so, we become wise. So he says in, in verse 24, That which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? Even the most wise of people will not find all the answers to life. Only God holds those things. His ways are higher than our ways and his mind higher than ours. Verse 25, I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even the foolishness of madness. And then he says in verse 26, he found something worse than death. And I, I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares. That snare is a, is a trap set for an animal. And, it, and an unexpected animal comes along and that trap catches that animal on the leg, breaks its leg and it can't get away. Or a, or a net to catch a bird. Or her hands. Her hands are like bands. Or that is uh, chains around the wrist. Somebody who's chained and taken to prison. That's the way her hands are. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her. You can't escape. But it has to be in your heart that you're living to please God. That's your, that's your motive in life, to please God. If, you, if that's your motive, you can escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Now, this is not just any woman. This is an 
immoral woman. It's a seductive woman. Uh, Solomon talks a lot about a woman like this or a man like this in the book of Proverbs. Now remember in the book of Proverbs, Solomon is speaking to the children of his kingdom. God is speaking to the children of his kingdom in the book of Proverbs. So he's not just talking to sons, he's talking to sons and daughters. So in the book of Proverbs, it's always right to make application on the opposite side. So when, when he tells a young man to stay away from a seductive woman, he's also saying for a young woman to stay away from a seductive man in the book of Proverbs. There's one passage I want us to look at. There's many in the book of Proverbs. Look back at your screen for a moment. And uh, here it is in Proverbs 17. And behold, there met him a woman with an attire or the dress of a harlot and subtle of heart. <clears throat> a couple of things we can take from this. One thing is there is clothes that make you look like a harlot. And, uh, but we shouldn't think of this clothing as being loud or gaudy necessarily or real skimpy or something like that necessarily. Uh, the idea is that it is seductive. In our day, we would use the word sexy. Had on a sexy outfit. And uh, so this is the woman that God is warning his children against. But also we make the application that a man, a man can be acting sexy as well and, and dressed in a sexy way. The, uh, again, the uh, New Living Translation translates it like this. The woman approached him seductively dressed and sly of heart. Now in the next verses it talks about their conversation. And she says things like, uh, well, my husband has gone on a long journey. There's nobody at my house. And uh, I've changed the sheets on the bed and I've used perfume and so forth in the room and nobody would catch us. We could go back to my house and we could drink our fill of love till the morning. And so she uses seductive words. You can read those verses in just a few seconds. But sometimes those seductive words take place over a period of hours or days. And they don't have to be the exact wording. Somebody says to a woman at work, your husband sure is lucky. Or he says something like this, I hope you don't mind me saying it, but you really look beautiful today. And then he proceeds. Or a woman, same thing. Both sides. Flattering speech. Seductive speech. Now, when we come down to verse 21 in this same passage right here, look at what it says. With her much fair or uh, beautiful speech, she causes him to yield. And with the flattering of her lips, she called, you know, tells him how handsome he is and so forth. And uh, uh, with the flattering of her lips, she forced him. Now, the word force there doesn't give the idea that he had no choice. She persuaded him. The New King James says... You see it there. She seduced him with her speech and with her flattery. And he goeth after her straightway. He falls into the trap. 
But this is what he doesn't know. He does it as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of stocks, chains, till a dark uh, arrow strike through his liver, causing tremendous pain. And he knoweth not that it is for his life. Would you allow me today to speak a warning to all of us, myself included, to warn us against that seductive man, that seductive woman who says just the right things to make us feel good and, and think we, we need what he or she has to offer. God says when we yield to that, when we are seduced by that, we're like an ox going to the slaughter and we don't realize the pain that's going to come to our lives, to our families, to our marriage, to our testimony, like an arrow struck through the liver. Let's flee it and turn from it and stay away from it. Maybe it's the man or the woman you meet at a, at a grocery store or at a school gathering or a social gathering, or in the neighborhood, or at work. Let's flee. That's what the New Testament tells us. Flee fornication. And so, he gives us here this short warning that he elaborates on in the book of Proverbs. Now, I've got to move quickly. I'm almost through. Verse 27 and 28 are a little difficult to understand. Look at verse 27. Behold, this have I found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account, which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not one man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. Now, nearly all scholars would agree there is an ellipsis in here that is... There is a, a word that's implied and understood that is not spoken. Certainly he found men and he found women. But we, if we use the context, the very next verse, verse 9, uh, t- uses the word upright. God made men upright. We've used the word righteous. We've used the word pleasing to God. So if we use that ellipsis and say it implies that he was looking for a righteous man or a righteous woman or an upright woman, then we have the problem, though, that he says with a man it was one in a thousand. And with a woman, he didn't find any. I mean, that sounds kind of bad on women, doesn't it? Um, But because this is a parallelism, it is, you know, also, for instance... In the book of Proverbs, he says there are six things that are wicked, yea, seven things are an abomination. Then he goes on to list seven things. It was a poetic way of saying seven things. So the idea here is that he can find neither man nor woman. Look back at my screen for a moment, uh, and uh, here is a note from Dallas Theological Seminary, the faculty there. It says, in this parallelism... And numerical sequence, his purpose was to say that such people, both men and women, are not only scarce, but are non-existent. There is not one among them all. 
if you just take away the punctuation from the King James, and remember the punctuation was not in the Hebrew. That's added by the translators. So if you take away the punctuation, it says, Not one man among a thousand have I found. A woman among all those have I not found. So if I were to paraphrase it, and this is my para paraphrased, Not one in a thousand, man or woman, have I found totally upright or totally righteous. So, so he's elaborating on what he started in verse 20. We're all sinners. Every one. And, and again, he closes with that in verse 29. Look at verse 29. Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought, they, men and women both, mankind, but they have sought out many inventions. Inventions mean schemes, plans, paths. They've, they've found many ways, many paths, many inventions to sin and to walk away from God. Man was created in God's image. Adam and Eve were created upright, but they fell and sin passed on to us. And we, all of us, find our own inventions and ways to sin. Therefore, we all need forgiveness. Now, this chapter stops here, but I'm glad the Bible doesn't stop here. It stops with the doctrine of total depravity. But uh, uh, beyond that, we have the doctrine of salvation by grace and and uh, we find that we can be righteous in the new testament not in our own righteousness but in the righteousness of christ and when we come to christ his righteousness is imputed or given over to us and placed on us so that we are righteous we are righteous in christ thank god for that bow with me please with their heads bowed maybe you'd say preacher I want you to pray for me, but don't raise your hand. This is just between you and the Lord. You'd say, I'm, I've come across that seductive man, that seductive woman. Now, this woman was not a prostitute. This woman was, her, was married. Her husband was on a trip. I've come across this temptation. And right now in your heart, I want you to tell the Lord you're turning from that. Ask the Lord for His strength to choose the right path, to walk away from that situation that you may be in right now and trust Him for that strength. Do it because if you don't, you're like an ox going to the slaughter and you're going to have severe pain like an arrow through the liver, pain in your life and marriage and family. Turn from it right now. And choose God's path. I wonder how many would say this. Preacher, I really do need God's wisdom in all of life. And I want that kind of wisdom. Wisdom from above. Pray for me. I want that wisdom for my life and family. If that's your prayer, would you slip your hand up right now all over? Yes, God bless you each one. You may put your hands down. Maybe you'd say this. Preacher, I'm not saved. I've never trusted the Lord Jesus as my Lord and Savior, pray for me. Would you, anyone like that? Slip your hand up quickly. Anyone? All right. Father, thank you for our time together. You've seen our hands. I pray for those maybe right now who are in a situation of temptation. And Satan has set a trap. I pray for them right now that you'd give them the courage and the wisdom to walk away from that trap. Walk away from the pain it's going to cause. I pray.
And then you've seen all of our hands. We need your wisdom desperately. Grant it as we look to you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, please. Words are on the screen. And as we sing, if you'd like to come for prayer, we invite you to come.